Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Following the show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like both pages. Well, the topic for tonight's show is Slaves in the Family with author Edward Ball. If you knew that you were a descendant of a slave owner, would you tell anyone? If you had an opportunity to apologize to descendants of those enslaved by your family, would you? Should you? Well, we will discuss these two questions and more tonight. And I welcome your participation by phone and through the chat. Well, Edward Ball is a writer of narrative nonfiction and the author of five books, including his newest book, The Inventor and the Tycoon. He is also the author of Slaves in the Family. This is his first book, and it was published in 1998. And this book told the story of his family's history as slave owners in South Carolina and of the families they once enslaved. Slaves in the Family won the National Book Award for Nonfiction, was a New York Times bestseller, was translated into five languages, and was featured on Oprah. Edward's family owned about 25 rice plantations and enslaved close to 4,000 Africans and African Americans over a period of 170 years. While this book was written in 1998, this legacy of slavery is a dialogue that many African Americans are attempting to find answers, answers concerning their ancestors. Where are the records? How can they find them? 
And is it possible to have a dialogue with a descendant of the slave owner? Well, I want to remind some of you about some of the other shows that I've had because these shows also looked at slavery. Judy Russell, you all will remember, the legal genealogist, spoke about property rights and wrongs. And Bernie Jones shared with us her research on fathers of conscience. And we can't forget that Regina Mason is currently working on the film of her story of William Grimes, the first fugitive slave narrative. And then, just a couple of weeks ago, we had Beatrice Nevins talk about brewers searching for their roots. And there's just been so many shows that I want to just encourage all of you to go back and listen to some of the shows that we've had. So let me give a warm welcome to Edward Ball. Hello, Edward. Glad that you're on. I'm glad to be with you, Bernice. Thanks for inviting me. Well, we certainly have had a lot of comments coming from LinkedIn, the genealogy and historical section of LinkedIn, and I hope that you weren't inundated with too many of those comments today. (laughs) I, I received quite a few of them, that's true. Yes, indeed. Well, let's go back in time. Let's discuss what led you to write this book. Well, it was some years ago, as you mentioned, um, I wrote Slaves in the Family in the late 1990s. And it began on the weekend of a family reunion in Charleston, South Carolina. In the mid-90s, I uh, attended an annual or um, every few years our family, my father's family, the Ball family of Charleston, would have a reunion. And I attended one, uh, and we toured some of the sites of the old family plantations, which are no longer owned by the Balls. They're owned by other families or by uh, corporations who use them as hunting retreats. And we uh, toasted each other, and we talked about the family story, but we did not talk very much about the African-Americans whom we once enslaved. And I thought at the time, I was in my 30s, I was a writer for the Village Voice, a newspaper in New York. I thought that we should do better than that. And so I decided that I would try to write the family story uh, as a shared history black with white. Uh, After all, our families uh, lived side by side in each other's lives and in each other's dreams and sometimes in each other's beds for many generations. And uh, so that's what I did. It was uh, was prompted by what I thought was um, a missing piece of uh, my own family history. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, when you say, you know, you had a shared experience uh, with those who were enslaved, but let's think about how did your family react when you told them that you you were planning on writing a book about the ball mm. slave owners? Yeah. Well, all of us in the family, and there, there are 
perhaps 150 members of the Ball family in Charleston and in South Carolina. All of us know um, from childhood about the plantations that our ancestors owned. Um, the last of them was sold away, I, I think, in the mid-1950s. Uh, it was it was and remains a matter of, of some pride that our family had once um, been uh, prominent and powerful. Uh, and yet, uh, it's, it must be said that we learned nothing from our parents, our grandparents, and the oral traditions of my family don't include and have not included the African-Americans whom we enslaved, mm -hmm. which is despite the fact that, uh, as we know, um, black families and white families were thoroughly involved in each other's lives in some of the worst ways uh, and in, in occasional times in some good ways. And uh, and it seemed to be that that shared history had not been acknowledged and not told. My family reacted uh, with some ambivalence, let's say. Um, and we had uh, the family had published a family history a hundred years ago, and it was all about the people in the big houses. Uh, and yet, uh, when I said I wanted to write a story that was a white and a black story and this is what I was going to do, and furthermore, that I was going to try to find descendants of the African-Americans whom we had enslaved, that that frightened people. Uh, yes. it, uh, it, made, it made me um, something of a, um, a dangerous figure in the family. Mm -hmm. And that, that was a, 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 it was a struggle for, for several years. So that's how, that's how they reacted. And yes. when the book was published, if if, uh, if you'd like to hear about that. When the book was published and it told the stories of 12 African-American families that we had enslaved uh, over a period of 150 or 200 years in their family history, as well as the story of my own white family, uh, it's, it, it shocked people. And uh, it was... Um, it was regarded by about half or perhaps 60% of the family as as a, as a, it was it was badly received let's put it bluntly mm -hmm. and, and you would say, and you said badly received it, it, tell us what what did that feel like badly received well you know i uh i became um something of a, um, a notorious figure in my family and um, someone who um, uh, had brought um, into the family history <clears throat> uh, black stories, black family stories that uh, were too painful, that were painful for uh, many of us to accept and to uh, to understand. You see, if if you grow up learning that your ancestors were in some ways uh, 
larger than life that they were um they were uh, gallants that they were they were kind and unusual and not only that very rich people people uh, who one is expected to pay respect to if you grow up hearing that uh it it's very hard to to uh to accept that your family members were also uh, cruel they were uh in some ways um sadistic they were um petty they were violent they hurt people and they did damage to the lives of thousands of people um those things are hard for uh, for white southerners who come from families like mine to come to terms with and uh-huh. it uh, it certainly was the case in my family yes 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 well i i certainly can imagine that uh but this is i guess this is part of the reality though that mm-hmm. was it that you outed the family and they were not quite ready for you to do that it's it wasn't that i outed the family as slaveholders because we all knew <clears throat> it's what i uh decided to write about in honest detail uh-huh. that people didn't want to hear uh-huh. so i i in the period of in in uh, doing research on the family history i would uncover many hundreds of pages of uh, slave lists of lists of uh of uh, the purchase and sale of people uh, uh, notes between family members of mine and their overseers, instructing them to uh, to beat people for having run away. Um, I would find circumstantial evidence of the interracial sex that was so common on the plantations uh, for so many years, and. These were these are difficult things for folks in families like mine to take to take into heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, if you come from a family like the Ball family, who <clears throat> and I would imagine that there are perhaps uh, five to ten million descendants of slaveholders, uh, such as I am, and. For the most part, we all know who we are. Mm-hmm. We all know that our families had uh, enslaved people. If you talk to families like mine, uh, for for many years, until uh, Slaves in the Family, my book, and other books like it began to come out, people would have two things to say about their families. They would have a, they would have two pieces of oral tradition. One of them was. Our family were gentle masters. Uh-huh. We were we were the exception. And then they would say, and our family did not. Our the men in our family did not sexually exploit black women. And it was the people next door who did that. Uh-huh. So it uh, the the it's uh, there's a certain amount of um, uh, denial or uh, disavowal that runs right across uh families like mine mm-hmm. uh and and i 
I imagine a psychiatrist would describe it as self-protective denial, but I think it's actually rather damaging, mm-hmm. and damaging not only to well, damaging to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, so do you I think that, that, that yeah. yes, did that self-denial was that a way of of kind of justifying? Well, we we were good people. Uh, mm-hmm. To just by saying that, you know, we we were good people. We really didn't. We were not like that. It was the other people. Right. Yes. That was that's common. That's the common line. And uh, it, if you begin to look at the realities, uh, it's uh, it's a lot messier. It's a lot more painful, and it's a lot more disagreeable. If you yes. begin to look at the fact that your great great grandfather uh participated in in sexually exploiting a number of women and and perhaps uh perpetrated violence against people of all generations in who were under the control of his households if you begin to look at that uh then it's a it's a very difficult, it's a stain, it's a kind of, um, then you have to deal with the emotions that are brought to the surface by this revelation. That's yeah. such a shame, such a shame, such as guilt, shame, and anxiety. And, uh, and that's, and that's quite apart from the idea that a very few people have, like I've I've had, which is to try to reach across the color line, and and uh, make contact with and establish relationships with uh, people from families that we had once enslaved. That that's an entirely <clears throat> higher level, another level. It's an entirely more profound level of um, of coming to terms with the. Uh, with the history of of slavery. Yes, it is a profound level, but it's a level that begs to occur, that people want to know. And you mentioned something uh, about evidence, that you found evidence in records, and this is one of the voids. This is one of the things that's missing for so many African Americans who are tracing their roots is where are the records? And mm-hmm. so let's look at what records you use to find information on those uh enslaved on the ball plantation. Sure. Well the balls um entered the plantation business in sixteen ninety eight in uh outside of Charleston with a single plantation. And over the next 170 years, they uh, acquired more plantations. And when the Civil War came to an end and emancipation was secured, by that time the Balls had bought and sold some 25 plantations and uh, enslaved close to 4,000 people. Uh, They... The Balls, my father's family, were record keepers, um, unusually assiduous record keepers. And one uh, man would save his 
plantation records and pass it to his son or daughter and and so on. And over the years, the balls accumulated some 10,000 pages of um, documents about the the property and the human property that they held. These records, about 100 years ago, were given and sold to four different libraries in the Deep South. Mm-hmm. And so at two libraries in South Carolina... Each one of those two has some 2,500 pages of Ball family records and two libraries in North Carolina. And these have the same amount. And these records are <clears throat> uh, maps, uh, lists of people purchased and uh, enslaved, um, so-called um, blanket lists, which are annual records of families living on and working on the plantations and allotments of food and clothing and housing that each received. And uh, in addition to that, uh, several thousand letters, which uh, sometimes include references to enslaved people on the ball lands uh, by name and recounting incidents uh, on those uh, places and all sorts of miscellaneous other accounts and receipts and this stuff is a <clears throat> is an unusually rich uh, and long uh, long standing resource it's not common that plantation families left behind such large uh, collections of, of records. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I, was, I had an advantage in, in the historical accident that these records had survived. And in addition to that, uh, many of your listeners and you, of course, will be aware of the records of the National Archives that are relevant to uh, African-American uh, genealogy. And in the case of the Ball family, plantations and um, formerly enslaved people, I looked quite closely at the records of the um, Freedmen's Bureau uh-huh. because um, I, I, we're, this is shop talk, and but you're accustomed to shop talk. Yes. Uh, <laughs> within the, the records of the Freedmen's Bureau <clears throat> for South Carolina, there are the initial sharecropping contracts for hundreds and hundreds of plantations that at the end of the Civil War immediately became sharecropping farms. Uh And these records um, include the names of people and their surnames uh, in the first the instance that they have used surnames. As we know, um, African-Americans, uh, at least in the records collected by white people, uh, did not use surnames on the plantations. But at the uh, moment of emancipation, people chose surnames or adopted the surname of their former master. The records that I'm referring to, 
the uh, the records the share the sharecropping contracts uh, include uh, the first use of the family surnames that I was able to discover in the post Civil War period, and so here's the magic key that uh, many uh, African American genealogists are looking for. I I was fortunate in that the records of enslaved people uh, were quite complete and contained uh, families listed by households, including mother and sometimes father and children. Uh Uh, And these records, I was able to line up next to the Freedmen's Bureau sharecropping contracts because many families did not leave the plantations at the conclusion of slavery. Uh, Perhaps 50 or 60 percent of them stayed and became sharecroppers. And so the the slave lists, if you line them up next to the sharecropping contracts, you can find, in in the case of the Balls, the uh, family before and after slavery. Uh, and in that way, uh, um, connect the uh, or uh, vault yourself over the brick wall that uh, many African American genealogists encounter at the year 1865. That's right, and I mean, but you're going to those sharecropping records as, as you said. You you were able to see. I mean, basically, the people never left slavery. If, if indeed it, right. they were still there. I mean, the, the only thing is they now had this, quote, legal system of which they would sign contracts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but basically they're still right where they were. They're still right where they were. <clears throat> um, and the struggle had not ended. It had it had been, I think that the struggle had, had been ameliorated to an extent I think it would be an overstatement to say that people as sharecroppers were living uh, just as they had been living as enslaved people. Um, There were um, limited paths of legal recourse, but nevertheless there were paths of legal recourse. If they had been subjected to violence, and if they'd been subjected to theft, uh, their conditions, had, their living, their lives had improved. They had not, um, they had not uh, become, they had not been perfected, but their lives had improved marginally from the time of enslavement. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Come back and continue this discussion. Just a quick break.
to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can also be downloaded from iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Now, I have opened the phone lines for questions and comments, and if you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. When I see you, I will call out your area code, and you will be live on the show. Okay, now I want to go back to uh, just talking with uh, Edward Ball. And, you know, there's one thing that I, I read in your book, and you recount how your father would joke, there are five things we don't talk about in the Ball family, religion, sex, death, money, and the Negroes. Now, have the descendants of the Balls and the families the Balls enslaved tried to bury what happened by not discussing it? <laughs> I think each uh, family, if you were to go to the kitchen tables of African-American families through the Deep South or in the, the Northeast, and you would go to the kitchen tables of the Balls, uh, many of them still in the deep south it would it would be uh, a different matter in each household. There are some people in my family who are willing to welcome uh, the the joining of our history with uh, african American family history. And there are others who are not. And similarly, uh-huh. I think among African Americans, it's um, uh, as as I'm sure you would agree, uh, some families are keen to uh, engage with the history of, of slavery and the story of their own family's uh, enslavement, and some families are not um, because it's too painful, uh, uh, and there's everything in between. So I, I think that burying the family story is, is certainly one way that both black folks and white folks have uh, have have dealt with this uh, enormously uh, painful shared history. Yeah. Yes, yes. And then, I mean, some people say, well, it happened a long time ago. It's time for us to just move forward. It happened a long time ago. But the reality is that we have people who are searching for their roots, who are trying to make sense and trying to be whole by finding as much as they can about their families. Mm-hmm. Sure, that's true. And <clears throat> I think there's been a, f- a flourishing in black family history in the last 10 to 15 years and it's fantastic and I, I welcome it 
And, but there's uh, a question, yes, coming out of the chat, and the question is, uh, how do you feel, or, or what does he feel he has benefited by sharing? What do you feel you've benefited by sharing uh, your family story? How have I benefited personally? Yes. Gosh. Well, um, uh, <clears throat> I've been privileged to see uh, 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 hundreds of people, thousands of people, uh, feel um, a kind of emotional healing uh, as a result of speaking honestly about the slave past, mm-hmm. and that's that, that's one of the things that's, that I've uh, benefited from, if you like to, to to put it in those terms, mm-hmm. and I. And I, I believe, as you seem to, that to to talk about the difficult parts of the past has a kind of medicinal uh, quality to it. It's, it is a healing thing to do mm-hmm. uh, to to bring the the poisonous uh, parts of the past to the surface and to try to come to terms with them has ultimately a a healing benefit, and I think that's that's one thing that I, I've experienced. Sure. Mm-hmm. And we actually have a, a comment coming out of the chat: um, knowing and communicating the truth liberates. That's a comment coming out of the chat. Mm-hmm. Now we do have uh, someone on the line, area code three hundred one. Do you have a question or a comment? I do. Hello, Mr. Ball. My Hello, name is. Howard. Hi, my name is Angela Martin, and first I'd like to say it's quite my pleasure meeting you. Mm-hmm. I was born in Charleston, along with several of my maternal generations, and I recently read your masterpieces, Slave in the Family and The Sweet Hell Inside, and I found both riveting, educational, and very emotional for me, as a matter of fact, brought tears to my eyes at the end of both books. And I'm in the process of researching my family in the same exact vicinity of the Halston family and some of your other family. And my grandparents and great-grandparents were very close friends of Miss Gussie and other Halstons, uh, Mickey, Carruthers, and DaCosta family. So first, I want to thank you and commend you so very much for your bravery and for your tenacity for publishing your research because for me, it helped open an, an historical window for me to learn about what my mulatto great-great-grandmother's life may have been like living in Charleston in, Charleston in the 1800s. Was right now in research, she's been very elusive to me. So my question to you is twofold, um, if you don't mind. I am in the process of locating documents of my possible ancestor, Colonel, uh, and plantation owner Colonel Francis Lance, let's say 1800 to, to 1877, married to Elizabeth Jane Ball, daughter of Archib- Archibald Ball. And I found mulatto children with their mulatto mother in 1870 that may be descendants of this family by the preponderance of evidence that I found. So mm-hmm. since many of the Balls share the Lance's surnames through intermarriage, of plantation uh, cousins like Hugers, Reeds, Kern, Taylor, Mangold, and others in your research, uh, 
you mentioned two of my family's surnames, Lance and Jenkins, taking after emancipation from the ball plantation. So what is the one thing that I can keep in mind to connect the dots from names of slaves taken, being that I may not necessarily find a will or sharecroppers' papers or Freedmen Bureau, as I've looked for them so far, can't find, or what is the lesson maybe that you've learned having done research indigenous to that vicinity, and how did this research affect your life? And thank you, Ms. Bennett, for having me on the air. Well, thank you for calling in. Well, Angela, thank you for your uh, comments about my two books, Slaves in the Family and The Sweet Hell Inside. <clears throat> and it sounds like we have some common ground. Uh, I, I'm not aware of Archibald Ball and Elizabeth Jane Ball in my family tree. These, the names, the, these two names don't ring a bell with me. Uh, there may be another Ball family that the Lances intermarried with. Um, I don't know. Um, however, uh, be that as it may, if if you haven't already spent time in the archives in Charleston of the South Carolina Historical Society, I would say that that would be a, a very good first stop. Uh, and I would say that the South Carolina Library in Columbia, South Carolina, would be another very good stop. <clears throat> the Lance and the Jenkins name, the Jenkins name is, as I'm, I imagine you know, a quite common low country South Carolina name. And uh, it may be, um, do you know, I don't know if you're still on the air. Do you know the plantations where uh, the, these families live, the names of those plantations? I have plantation names associated with the Lances, yes, and there are quite a few of them, probably about a dozen, yes. I do, uh -huh. I've found them. Have you had any success looking to find records from those plantations? I've just located them recently at the South Carolina Archives on a recent trip at the uh, at the Historical Society, and yeah. it's, the records are quite extensive, probably similar to, similar to yours, probably a couple of thousand pages. That's good. So it was like looking for a needle in a haystack in my situation. Yes, it, it may well be like that. I'm but, in Maryland, and they're not digitized yet, so... No, they're not. They're not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it may be a matter of of taking a week of your time to to consume these records. Yeah. Uh, that's how I began to construct the genealogies of uh, people in slavery, okay. by immersing myself in the, the family papers on the relevant uh, plantations. Um, it is a needle in a haystack, but once you get in into it, you develop an appetite for it. And yes. uh, it's, 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 it's no longer work. It's, it's, uh, it's something very interesting. Yes. Did you find anything that was indigenous to the region of Charleston that maybe you would have done differently? In terms of research. In terms of research, I'm sorry, yes. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I 
I, uh, I, I think that I, I looked under as many stones as I could in, in the paper trail. Okay. Uh, there, uh, I mean, uh, there really are only four or five uh, institutions in the Carolinas that have the majority of the family papers of the slave-owning class uh, in in the house, and they're not difficult to find. These these institutions they're in Columbia, South Carolina. They're in Charleston. Okay. They're in Durham, North Carolina, and they're in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Okay. And uh, it's not it's not easy as 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 we all know, but um, it's it you, once you develop an appetite for it, um, you're not going to want to stop. Right. I think one of the the biggest barriers is finding where to go. You know where are these documents? Because some of, some individuals may have them in their own private collections, and what what is needed is to share those those records, let others know that they have them. Well, mm-hmm. we do have another question coming in, and it's from area code four four three. Hello. Good evening. Hello. Uh, a quick question for you, uh, Mr. Ball. Um, I had the pleasure of hearing you when you spoke after the book was published when you gave a presentation in Baltimore, and you were also a guest uh, about, uh, um, gosh, it's been that many years, I guess, uh, 12 years ago, on AfroGenius.com, and we had our, our guests in our online chat. And you made a statement at that time. And um, one of the questions was, you know, what have you learned or what what are your feelings after the publication of the book? And you made a statement on both of those occasions. And you made a statement that I thought was interesting, and you said, I've lost fear, and mm-hmm. uh, which I always thought was interesting. And, of course, now it has been more than 10 years. It's been more than 12 years. Um, I'm curious, now as you're sitting back now, it's 2013, um, looking back now, what are your feelings and what have you learned since that time? That's part one. Part two is, do you still have results from readers, people who are just discovering your book? But uh, uh, I would like to hear, you know, what your feelings mm-hmm. are now. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, it's it's uh, it's touching that you remember uh, this uh, remark that I made so many years ago. Um, uh, to answer the second question first, yes, I I receive emails and letters uh, and phone calls about this work, Slaves in the Family, and and the research uh, connected to it uh, on a monthly sometimes a weekly basis, and I have uh, since 1998. So it's it's not in any way um, a forgotten subject. There are, as we all know, uh, thousands of people who are investigating their own family histories, and uh, from time to time people uh, put themselves in touch with me and and uh, ask for help or uh, uh, express some of their emotions about the slave past. So, yes, I I continuously um, 
I'm in dialogue with people about this. What have I learned since then? Well, I, I, I'm trying to understand how um, America has changed since the 1990s. And uh, I think in some ways uh, things have gotten better uh, in terms of uh, black folks and white folks seeing each other uh, face-to-face as, as companions in, in our national history. Uh, and I think that personally, black folks and white folks on an individual basis are doing better than they were 15 years ago. I seem to recognize that, uh, but in no way have we um, rid ourselves as a country of of racism. Uh, I I think that the uh, legal uh, remedies to America's racist history uh, will, in retrospect, seem to have been relatively easily won, even though the Civil Rights Movement was a period of tremendous sacrifice. The result was a set of uh, of legal remedies that bring black folks and white folks more into uh, alignment in in the in the in the courts and uh in the marketplace however the the business of um of of healing the racism that is in the unconscious of individuals is a much harder project and we have only just begun to uh, individually uh, rid ourselves of of our of our ethnic biases and hatreds and fears and anxieties and that's going to be a lot harder even than um, than the legal corrections that were brought to us by the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, there are several questions coming out of the chat, and uh, I do have one question before we even go back to the chat, is that you have, you know, I know you've had an opportunity to meet with some of the descendants of the Ball Plantation. Now, how did you find them, and what was their reaction to you? Right. <clears throat> well, the the estimate that I've made of the living descendants of people enslaved by the Ball family in South Carolina is that between 75,000 and 100,000 living Americans today can trace their roots to the plantations owned by my family, African Americans. Uh, I, When I began to research this book and try to make contact with uh, black families whose history I share, I had to decide whether I would meet hundreds and hundreds and perhaps more than that, people, or if I would meet a smaller number of people 
and have relationships with at least some of them. And I decided to do the latter. <clears throat> so the first person that I met uh, whose family story uh, I was able to link with was a man called Thomas Martin. Uh, and he, as it happens, lives in Charleston, South Carolina, or once lived there. He died some 10 years ago. I had in my hands uh, some letters written by this man's great-grandfather to my great-grandfather. In other words, letters written by uh, a former slave to his former master. And these letters uh, were all postmarked in small towns in the Carolinas, and I began to telephone those towns and ask families named Martin whether they knew the name of this uh, this letter writer. And soon enough, I found the right Martin family. So the very first family that I found was quite uh, quite by accident, quite by a, a unique circumstance. And I went to visit Mr. Martin, and we were fortunate because he was a 65-year-old retired school principal and a very dignified man and a man of uh, no small talk. And we were able to, we circled each other like we were trying not to uh, step on each other's toes. Uh And it it was a very uh, tense, for me, a a very tense situation. I mean, if you can imagine this just for a moment. Yes, I'm, I'm listening to you, and I'm just wondering, I mean, did you, how that was. <laughs> yes, how it was, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the key to all of the relationships that I ultimately developed with African Americans whose ancestors my family had enslaved was research. I was able to bring to Mr. Martin uh, stories about his enslaved forebears and their circumstances and their jobs and their names and that he did not know. And so I came to his house and I had this file. I had been reading about uh, his uh, family on the plantation called Limerick, which is one of the ball places north of Charleston, and I brought this file, and I sat down with him, and it it um, it was the secret to establishing trust mm-hmm. with uh, with with Mr. Martin and his and his family, mm-hmm. and 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 our relationship continues to this day. Uh, they were. I, I met dozens and dozens and dozens of African American families uh, in a similar way. Uh, sometimes, by word of mouth, I would learn that a family had oral tradition that their people had lived on the ball places, and I would take this uh, opportunity to. Uh, to ask if I could visit them and try to uh, establish a, a trusting conversation.
conversation. And I would go back to the archives and study the records to try to extract information about their individual family. And then I would bring this information to them. Uh, and that was the relation, the way that our relationships uh, normally developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- yeah, this was several years ago. Right. Well, I see uh, there's a question coming out of the chat. What kind of trust was established? And it sounds like you you were giving them something rather than taking. You went there with something to to share with them. Yes. Is that so. how you established your trust, or is there another way that you established trust? Uh, the way you describe it is is accurate, I think. Uh, in many cases, I was able to bring uh, information and family history to people that they had previously not had. Uh-huh. And, and that, consist, that comprised a kind of gift, a kind of token, a kind of... Um, uh, talisman, if you like, it 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 helped. Uh, it, the uh, the alternative mm-hmm. would would be the alternative would have been I would simply contact people and and say I'm from the family that enslaved your family. Let's talk. And th- I think that 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 would not have been the best way to. To speak to people, mm-hmm. it, it, I mean, the, 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 as, you, as you can imagine, the, the first meetings, especially <clears throat> between the descendants of slaves and descendants of their enslavers, mm-hmm. are charged, are very charged with emotion and with and with suspicion and and uh, sometimes with uh, hidden anger with. Uh, with 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 fear, as we've mentioned before, and and they're they're always very exhausting emotional <laughs> experiences. Mm-hmm. Now there's some questions, as I mentioned, that were coming out of the chat, but there's also a comment, and uh, this is from Shannon Christmas. He says that I find it amazing that so many people have traced their family to the plantation. My relatives live in close proximity to the ancestral plantation and haven't any knowledge of the connection or what occurred there. Now, did you mm-hmm. encounter any people who really did not know? Anything about the ball plantation connection to their family? Yes, sure. Uh, quite a lot of people. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My estimate is that perhaps one in five African American families has oral tradition that uh, links them to a, a plantation or even even a county in the deep south. In the mm-hmm. time of slavery, mm-hmm. it's uh, for, for many reasons, principally for the for the reason that people left the South and came north and cut off family memory. By doing so, uh, for many reasons like that, uh, African Americans, uh, uh, in large part, do not have oral tradition that that would place their families in a plantation in a, in a 
County in the Deep South. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I met many people. Yeah. Not many people. You. I know. I, I I met many. I met many families. I've met many many families who who uh, do not know or did not know before I turned up at their doorstep yes. that they had uh, links to these uh, plantations. Right, right. But once again, it's it's part of that sharing because so many people who are descendants of slave owners may know that, may have seen names and records, but the information is not being shared. I mean, do you have any recommendations for those people who are sitting out there fearful of sharing or just it's just kind of something they're not feeling is necessary? Mm-hmm. Yes, I I think if uh, if there are families who have records of plantations in their ancestry and they have them at home, I I think that they should uh, move to give them to libraries and archives in the areas where these plantations once stood and make them publicly available. Uh, That that seems to me the only only thing really to do. Um, And and, uh, if if people hold on to things, uh, there's a certain selfishness uh, in doing so that that I I can't I can't applaud. I cannot uh, approve of. Yes, yes. And and it just should be encouraged. I mean, that fear that you mentioned in the beginning. I mean, is that a is it real? I mean, what what is the fear? On the part of whom? The white folks or the black folks? The white folks. <laughs> the white folks. Uh, I, I think it's a it's a fear with a complex set of of foundation, a complex foundation to it. I mean, you could, if you if you stripped it to its naked root, uh, there's something about racial identity. There's something about there's something about whiteness that um, that penetrates deep into the hearts of of uh, of individuals, and uh, it, it makes it difficult for those folks to see uh, black folks uh, as their common brothers and sisters. Um, and that's racism. But the fear can also derive from um, from the desire to protect one's own family uh, story from um, from <laughs> being taken away. And a lot of white white folks uh, who are in a position such as I have been in uh, find it very hard to accept that their family history, let's say the family history of slaveholders, is the same as 
family histories of people that they enslaved, and they're reluctant to and frightened of of sharing that. Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Uh, Mr. Ball, are you online? Yes, I'm right here. Okay. For a minute there, we lost you. <laughs> yes, I know. The phone call seemed to drop, but we're back. Yes, wow. Everybody's going, oh, the side of, side of relief. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, let's. Uh, I know I read this really interesting interview you had with Emily Fryer. Oh, and yes. I I just want to know, how did you find her, and what did you learn about her slave-owning ancestors and about her family? Hmm. Um, <clears throat> Emily Freyer uh, was, when I met her, a 93-year-old woman uh, living in Charleston who who had very strong memories of her grandparents, who had been born into slavery on one of the Ball family plantations, a place called Limerick, north of Charleston. And I found her by um, by publishing a, a small item in a black newspaper in South Carolina um, saying who I was and saying that I was uh, interested in uh, reaching out to African American families who have roots on 
these plantations. And her family got in touch with me after reading this newspaper item. And uh, much to their credit, um, they invited me to come talk to Mrs. Freyer. And she was a, a feisty and funny woman. She's no longer alive. A very a small woman of perhaps five foot three, ninety five pounds, um, full but full of wit and energy. And she had very uh, uh, strong memories of uh, of her grandparents who had been, as as they were referred to, all family slaves, and the stories that they had told her, Mrs. Freyer, when she was a young girl. And her family was one of these uh, uh, handful of African-American families who have a lot of uh, lore about the slave days. Uh, they had not let it go. They had kept it alive. And uh, she told me quite a, a number of remarkable stories about uh, the, the shared lives of the Balls and the uh, Freyer family. The Freyers at that time were called the Lucases. Mm-hmm. In any case, um, for example, if I may share one story with you that I borrow from Mrs. Freyer. Sure. May she rest in peace. Uh, she said that her grandmother, <clears throat> a woman named Ellen, who took the family name Lucas after freedom, was 12 years old and was in the uh, in the kitchen as an assistant cook and the end of the Civil War was uh, at hand. It was almost uh, the, the the army, Sherman's army had uh, marched through uh, South Carolina and a, dis, a, a splinter uh, company of, of this army was going from place to place on the Cooper River emancipating uh, the black families living on the, all of the plantations. And the story that Mrs. Freyer told was that Ellen, her grandmother, was standing in the door of Limerick Plantation when the Yankees came trotting up the the road, uh, 20 of them, and the, the captain dismounted and stomped up and the Ball family were sitting in in the dining room reading the Bible. And the Yankee said, we want to see all of the colored people on this place right here, right now. And so Mr. Ball, this would be my great-grandfather, his mm-hmm. name is William Ball, called asked the black families to come around to the front. Of course, they had, they had already heard what was going on. Yes. And so 200 people were standing in front of the, the main house, and the captain from the, from the Yankee company says, you're free as a bird. You do not have to work here anymore. And the, and the women got down on their knees and began to pray, and the men took off their skull caps, threw them in, in the air, and started to dance. And it was an amazing image of the moment of, of freedom that uh, Mrs. Freyer's family had kept alive. And uh, 
one of the many remarkable stories that you told me. Right. It is a remarkable story. And thank you so much for for sharing that. I could imagine how you felt when she shared it with you. Mm. It's very yeah, it's, it's it was emotional for me as well, of course. Yes, yes. Well, I have I put another question on on Lincoln and and I shared this with okay. folks and you know, we got a lot of reactions. And the reaction uh related to should you apologize? And mm-hmm. I, I saw you on the Oprah Winfrey show when you apologized uh, to Katie Roper and her daughter, Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess the question is, why did you apologize? And how did you feel when you gave the apology? Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> let's say that there are 100,000 living black Americans whose ancestors my family enslaved. It um, it might be uh, practically impossible to reach out to each of those folks and extend some words of consolation um, and apology. So uh, in the path that I took in writing this book and in talking about my family history over the years, I've apologized um, publicly to two different families um, because I think that uh, the symbolic act of of that kind of uh, apology um, is an important thing. Uh, I have not gone from one family household to another uh, in a kind of um, uh, conveyor belt, apologizing to each family that I met along the way. And I chose this moment of the Oprah show as one of the moments when I would make a public apology because I thought it would be, it would have the widest uh, uh, symbolic reach. And, mm-hmm. uh, and in fact, Millions of people uh, saw that show, and uh, and I still find myself talking about uh, this apology today. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Why did I do it? Because I believe that although there was no um, financial capital that was handed down to my hands, to the hands of my generation in the Ball family, that comes from the slave days. In other words, there was no bloody money that was uh, conveyed over the generations. The money was gone by the time the 1900s began. There was a great deal of cultural capital that was handed down from generation to generation into my own hands. By that, I mean cultural advantages, um, education advantages, advantages in housing, advantages in employment, uh, advantages of all stripe that collectively we can call cultural riches. And I believe that those things were taken uh, mm-hmm. from um, many hundreds of people, from many thousands of people, by personally, by my family. And I 
thought, and I do think today that symbolically it's important for uh, someone to reach out a hand of atonement mm-hmm. uh, and ask for forgiveness for the damage that uh, my family did to so many other families. Mm-hmm. And so I did, and that's why I did it. And that's why you did it. And then, I mean, we've had some comments, and I shared them with you. And one comment from an individual stated, my ancestors did what they did in their times. If anybody wants an apology, payments for past societal problems, then let them take it up with my ancestors and not me. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's a, that's a rather defensive attitude, uh, as it as it comes to my ears, I I, I find that a rather um, there's a kernel of anger behind uh-huh. that statement and a defensiveness and a fear, if you like to use that uh, word that we were talking about before. It sounds to me in that statement like there's an element of fear, uh-huh. and um, and uh, I, I recognize that oh. Throughout hundreds of white families that I know personally, I recognize that that kind of uh, fear and anxiety. It's it's, uh, it's very familiar to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, I think I would ask that man or woman to <clears throat> consider what benefit uh, he or she took from the legacy established by his family, mm-hmm. and consider that honestly. Yes. Now, we have a, another question. It's more about uh, interracial relationships. And mm-hmm. have you, uh, do you know of any descendants of the Balls interracial relationships during slavery, and have they been welcomed into the family? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, there, as far as I was able to determine, there were many uh, um interracial sexual relationships on the ball plantations that produced many children. Um, And uh, to make a very complicated story rather simple, I was able to uh, verify with circumstantial evidence, oral tradition, photographic evidence, and other ways, two different family uh, histories where, uh, in other words, I was able to identify two families that I, I think I could prove beyond a reasonable doubt are, uh, as as they would have been called in those days, mulatto cousins of mine. And, and their stories are in plays in the family. Uh, those two family histories are in that book. Mm-hmm. And they're quite extensive <clears throat> and interesting, and they exemplify the patterns of interracial sexual relations as as they developed in the South. Mm-hmm. Now there are many other families that we are cousins with, um, and uh, and are and there are different stories to be told about each of them. Um, however. I, I must say that I I've remained the only bridge in my family between uh, 
the African-American cousins and the white balls. I had remained the only point of contact between those uh, two different groups. So, no, the the African-American cousins had not been welcomed into the ball family. And um, that this is the most volatile part of the legacy of slavery. As we know, it's the most uh, fearful thing for both black folks and white folks, and it's not at all an easy subject. But it can be negotiated, and and uh, it, it can happen that uh, white families of good heart will want to develop uh relationships with their black cousins it can happen and it has happened and and i'm i'm proof of that yes yes it it definitely can happen i have a question coming out of the uh, uh on the line and that's area code 858 do you have a question or a comment uh yes good evening bernice hi this good evening. is mike this is michael henderson how are you doing hello, hello hi how are you mike I'm doing very well. I, I, I want to first commend you for the, the work that you've done uh, in providing uh, this information, this bridge, as you say, uh, into your family's historical past. It has helped uh, tremendously in terms of uh, the overall healing process. Uh, and, and let me just be the first one to acknowledge the fact that someone like yourself who have gone forward and put this information out, it has allowed someone like myself, who is African-American, to to be able to appreciate the, the challenges that both sides of the family uh, have in terms of our mm-hmm. research. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to pose, and, I, and, and it's more about on your mother's side of the family, you mentioned that your mother was from uh, uh, Louisiana or New Orleans, and the family has a history that goes all the way back to French colonial Louisiana. Uh, have you considered... Uh, doing any further research, uh, some sort of documentation of that line of the family that goes all the way back to your mother's side. Uh, the reason why I ask is that uh, uh, Jacques Michel Zarang, who you mentioned in your book, uh, uh, is uh, probably the earliest, uh, I guess, German ancestor that you had in Louisiana. And the name is, uh, it strikes somewhat of a chord with me personally. Uh, uh, Jacques Michel Zarang uh, owned 16 slaves, uh, according to his succession document in 1738 when he died, and uh, I am I am almost certain, and and I'm 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 sitting here with chills right now because I'm I'm possibly talking to a descendant of uh, mm-hmm. this individual. That uh, again, it, this is the bridge. This is the bridge that I'm now starting to feel upon right now. Oh, his his. His wife, uh, his second wife, uh, Barbara Herdelin, um owned uh, my fourth-generation grandmother. And uh, when I read this piece in your book, I, I found myself wondering whether or not you have actually started the research and uh, might be able to help me along because I'm, I'm teetering on uh, making a connection to my uh, African slave ancestor and slave ancestors that was once owned by them. So I'd like to hear whether or not if you have actually considered or are working. You you covered just briefly on page 11 
that your mother's side of the family goes back to this progenitor. And uh, I, I, I'm, I'm feeling that I think I might know something uh, that you may be able to help me or maybe to help you. And I'd yes. like to hear some right. comments if you have. Uh-huh. Well, thank you for your call, Michael. That is very moving. And uh, and it may well be that we have common ground. Um, Jacques-Michel Zerang was the progenitor in Louisiana of a slaveholding family of four or five generations in length, and they were <coughs> principally um, in business, if you like, in the sugar planting business at a place called Seven Oaks Plantation in Gretna, Louisiana, which is across the Mississippi River from New Orleans. And uh, this is a history that I know of uh, in a sketchy way. I, I don't know of it uh, in the detail that I know about my father's family history. And I have not, in fact, begun to dig through records that might connect uh, to the histories of the enslaved people on the Zerang plantations. Um, however, I'm considering doing it because uh, it's a story that's lying there and and should be told. Uh, I don't know that the I don't know the archives in Louisiana as well as I might, uh, although I, I would like to go and begin to investigate them to see whether the Zerang papers survived and to see uh, what I can uncover about uh, that uh, that branch of my family history. Um, if you'd like to, Michael, send me an email. Um, please do that. Uh, just to tell me what you've just told me here on the air. I'm at Yale University and my email address is edward.ball at yale.edu and I'd be very interested to uh, follow up with you. Uh, anyway, thank you for your call. Okay, well we're getting close to the end of the show and uh, there there's one more question in here and then I want you to say something about your new book. But what role does your book have uh, has it played in your your life today and as a writer have you moved on? Uh, does the book still have a place in your life today? This this is the question that's coming out of the chat. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Slaves in the Family was the first book that I published. It was published 14 years ago. And I've published four other books since then. Um, three books. And my first two books had... A, um, at their center, um, stories of people enslaved in the American South. My next three books did not. So in a way, professionally, I have moved on to other interests. And uh, I do write nonfiction. I write uh, books that are sold as history in the history sections of the bookstore, uh, but I have not only written about the uh, slave past. Uh, slaves in the family, having said all that, is 
is a book that I'm glad to have written and that touched many people and continues to touch people. And it uh, it plays a it plays a good role in my life now, and uh, I'm, I'm glad of that. And I hope it continues to live, like, because it seems to, it's a it's a story that many people can share and identify with. Uh, it tells the stories of um, black families living side by side with white families over generations. And that is that is the story of Southern states, and uh, it's it's shared by many people. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about your your new book, and and we'll let you go for the night. <laughs> okay, right. Well, my new book uh, uh, has nothing to do with the South, has nothing to do with uh, plantations. Uh, it's it's called The Inventor and the Tycoon. And it's the story of the invention of the movies, which uh, 150 years ago, there was a photographer named Edward Moybridge who, in California, working for a, a railroad tycoon named Leland Stanford, was able to invent pictures in motion and project moving pictures on a screen for the first time and uh, thus giving rise to the movie industry, to the television industry, and to the media bath in which we all swim. And so this book tells the story of this man and this invention and uh, and the Western uh, drama of the late 1800s uh, in California, the frontier drama. And... Um, and what's <clears throat> what's curious, the last word I have about this, is that this inventor, Edward Moybridge, was also a murderer. He was um, he was he killed a man, in in uh, and was tried in a sensational trial, and so the book tells the story of this uh, crime uh, alongside the story of the invention of the cinema. Oh. Mhm. Okay. So that's it, and it's published by Doubleday, in, and uh, it's in the bookstore near you. Okay. Well, I hope everyone will go out and get your new book. And I do have two more questions, and then we're we're done for tonight. <laughs> the first question is about DNA. Have you tested your DNA? Are, are you considering testing your getting your DNA tested to find other uh, cousins out there who may not be white? Right. Well, I'm considering doing it. I have not done it in the up-to-date uh, tests that I think you're referring to, the autosom- autosomal DNA autosomal. test. Yeah. Right. Um with which you can sort of post your results online and find people who might be connected to you. I haven't done that. Uh, these are tests that have only recently developed. I think about five years ago, I did some testing on my DNA to try to to see <clears throat> if I could prove a connection with an African-American family, and I was unable to do that. 
the tests were that the tests were not as sophisticated in those days, but today they're more sophisticated. And uh, yes, I'm considering doing that. Okay, and then any parting words to the chatters and callers? Well, thanks for being interested in in our shared history, and uh, I look forward to talking with you again. Okay, and we look forward to hearing you again. So thank you so very much for joining me tonight. This this has been a, a much longer show than we normally have, but I want to thank you so very much. And Chatters, also, I'd like to thank you. Well, next Thursday, May 23rd, please join my special guest, family historian Laura Lanier, and she will discuss genealogy resources in Mississippi. So good night. Thank you so much, Mr. Edward Ball. And remember, everyone, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, research at the National Archives, and beyond. And remember, everybody, to register for the Midwest African American Genealogy Institute in St. Louis. Now, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning. Thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by Bernice Bennett of BB's Genealogy and Educational Services, LLC. And my website is www.geniebroots.com. Good night, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night. Good night, everyone. <laughs>